The clinical trial landscape is facing a crisis. Pharma giants like Pfizer, GSK, Johnson & Johnson have all been quietly struggling to bring new drugs to market. Why? Well, because clinical research is unsustainably expensive. It costs anywhere between four to $10 billion to develop a new medicine. The elephant in the room is that no one is signing up. Clinical trials have an extremely low recruitment rate where 20% of trials shut down because of the lack of patient enrollment. Ultimately, only 12% of drug development trials are actually successful. So what's the solution? Well, it's the convergence of people, technology, and connectivity. In other words, decentralized clinical trials. This is a patient-centric shift, meaning that clinical research doesn't have to just take place in the traditional hospital setting and can now take place in the home and community. Today, I'm joined with Craig Lipset, the ex-head of clinical innovation at Pfizer. We discussed the clinical trial crisis and how technology is reshaping the future of medical research. We touch on big tech's role in revolutionizing clinical trials and how Apple has changed the clinical research landscape forever. We, of course, end on opportunities of using AI and digital twins in the research setting. I hope you enjoy this episode and please subscribe to the channel. Clinical research has often focused on deliverables where you invest X amount of money for Y number of deliverables. We're starting to see a shift and a greater focus on those deliverables being more patient centric with a stronger focus on empathy. In your career, where did you first begin to start to see this shift? It's a great question, and it's uh, great that you sort of bring up this theme of of empathy. For many folks that work in in a field, their their uh, introduction to empathy is just when there are situations that involve themselves or their family, right? When things get very very personal, and all of a sudden they might have a greater appreciation for the burden and challenges of those around them. That was certainly the case for me, in that I was working in clinical research already for a number of years when I had my own diagnosis as a person with pulmonary sarcoidosis. For people that have sarcoidosis, which is, in my case, an inflammatory condition that leaves residual granuloma and scarring in the lungs, it becomes very restrictive for things that you like to move, like your lungs. We like when they move. When they aren't moving quite as well, that becomes a problem with that little thing we like to call breathing. Now, I had my own journey and diagnosis and managing that condition while I was working in clinical research. And so I was going through this journey as a patient and as a very nerdy patient, I was a very strong advocate around my data. I wanted my data from every one of my encounters. I felt like that data was gonna be the key for me to figure out what was going on, what is this diagnosis? And so whether it was biopsy findings or imaging studies or pulmonary function tests, whatever those data were, I was aggressively making making sure I had them, I was capturing them, tracking them, logging things on my own. And so that got me connected to this universe around the e-patient and the e-patient movement that was sparking up some 20 years ago. I even spent some time back then with a new friend at the time, e-patient Dave DeBroncard, who was really a pioneer in that movement and really helped me to get connected and exposed to many other patients and what they were doing around greater empowerment and really being participants in their own care. So for me, what I started to do was make this connection, right? In my personal life, I was connecting with these patients, empowered participants in their care, and then started to look at my day job in clinical research and how might those same empowered patients then become participants in research studies. And so this work that I started doing back when I was Pfizer some now 19 years ago really was tethered to that experience 
my experience as a patient, the connections that I was getting exposed to around the participatory medicine community and starting to map and track what could we do differently when these highly engaged patients are now using the same tools as participants in research. It's, it's a fantastic story that you have merged the patient side of your journey with, of course, the, the, the research side that you've been doing with pharma and that ability to understand empathy is what gets me excited about decentralized trials because of the fact that it's putting the patient first. And it's funny when we, when, when I was back in pharma, I was always very cautious about even using the word empathy internally because what I'd find is if I tried to talk to teams about building empathy, they almost looked at me as if I was suggesting they were psychotic. How could you even hint that I lack empathy, right? <laughs> I like puppies and babies and I'm not trying to like, uh, you know, harm people on, as a hobby. But as, as you hint at, empathy is different than just being a decent human human being. It's about really investing that time to understand the, in, in our case, the research participants journey and to really understand the complexities, barriers and nuances there. And so as an example, you know, I don't like to assume that participants want to necessarily do everything on their own from home, just like I don't want to assume that they want to do everything from the clinic. And that's why we speak more and more today about strategies that can give patients options and choice and how they want to participate and from where they wish to participate. I'm sorry for interrupting the podcast. I honestly hate ads. So I promise you, number one, this isn't an ad. And number two, this is just honestly a message to all my listeners. I'm on a mission to build the biggest health innovation media brand in the world. The podcast is only a small part of my mission and I've been consistently grinding to level up the quality and production value of my content. I hope you're beginning to see somewhat of a difference. In return, I ask you one favor and that is please just hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much and back to the episode. The health data points that are being measured outside of the clinical setting are becoming firstly more accurate and also expanding. This has historically been the rate limiting factor, right? And so the question is, what are some of the new barriers that we need to overcome and is it still tech dependent? There are really only two boundaries when it comes to research and innovation. One is data integrity and the other is patient safety. And within those boundaries, we have actually a fair amount of latitude. Now, to your point, there are things that we measure that we have measured for years that we could measure outside of a traditional clinical research site. Um, logic data points like blood pressure or otherwise that we can collect with great confidence from home, potentially with greater frequency. And then in some cases, we have new endpoints that we're able to develop, qualify, and validate that are powered by new digital tools. So for instance, an endpoint that we've relied on in research studies for years has been a six-minute walk test, whether for studies in heart failure to movement disorders. We love bringing patients into the clinic and research studies to have them walk in the hallway in a fixed distance between cones so that we can watch uh, physiologic data come off of them. But of course, that same individual walked 10, 20, 30 times as much that morning just to get to the clinic from the parking garage or from, from the subway station. And so our ability to collect that type of data, physiologic data, while an individual is walking, even in a controlled way, we can do using modern technology like a connected device and a smartphone in a more continuous way. And so those efforts to digitize our endpoints will give us significantly better data 
but also greater flexibility around location. We could collect that same data like a six-minute walk test with digital tools in a clinic if a patient prefers to go in there. It could be from their pharmacy, their community doctor's office, or from home. Um, but either way, we can collect it consistently and with great confidence if we're able to make that investment in, in validating that endpoint with enough lead time. We can't make those changes happen in the middle of a pandemic, but we can make them happen when we're planning out the development of a new medicine and investing early in the endpoints that we need to conduct those studies. Before this podcast, I was doing some brainstorming around some of the other barriers and limiting factors that are needed to consider when talking about um, clinical research. And I think another one is a mindset shift amongst populations in participating in clinical trials. Clinical research has often been a big gray area, gray area for many patients. What is the next step in truly engaging populations? How do we demonstrate, re-demonstrate and regain that trust? No, these are great questions, right? Because as you point out, for decentralized research in particular, there are barriers beyond just the measurements and technology. There's a lot of uh, regulatory variability on a country by country basis in terms of what one can do in some markets or others uh, with different tech. There's data flow concerns. There's just managing change within pharma, with regulators, with research sites. But as you call out, there are bigger issues out there as well, in particular around trust. And those trust barriers can run deep and they can become very different even among different populations, whether separated by age or, importantly, separated by race, ethnicity, and other considerations. Now, there are some strategies that I think can help us in, in overcoming and managing and working together around some of those trust barriers. First of all, transparency tends to be you know a great countermeasure for trust, making sure that people are being transparent around their data that they generate in their research studies, making sure that's as open and accessible as possible. Possible. But trust building comes in a lot of different ways. Some is by working more collaboratively within communities, through community health centers, through other types of community outreach programs, partnering closely with advocacy and other groups, making sure that studies are being designed collaboratively with patients, as you mentioned earlier, through empathy building, to make sure that patient concerns and voice are being factored into those studies. Let me give one example, though, of, of a great strategy for trying to overcome some trust barriers. The place that people most want to learn about research is not the internet, and it's not from a pharmaceutical company's website or collateral. The place they want to learn about research is from their own doctor, the doctor in their life. Most people that are eligible for a research study have a diagnosis already, and they're already on some form of prescription medication, which means they already have a doctor in their life. And so the person that they already trust for making collaborative decisions around their care is their doctor. Now, why isn't their doctor talking to them today about research? Because that doctor's probably not an investigator in a research study that's right for them. That's serendipity. If a patient just happens to be under the care of a doctor who happens to be an investigator that happens to be running a study that happens to be right for them, unfortunately, all of that serendipity is really the only way that people learn about research from the place they 
want to learn about research, their trusted provider. Now, here in the U.S., the FDA did something really interesting when they wrote their draft guidance earlier this year around decentralized clinical trials. They created a role for the healthcare provider, the HCP, the person that is in the community treating the patient who is not an investigator in the study. That person, the HCP, the patient has a name for them. They call them my doctor, my nurse, my pharmacist, right? But we've never given them a role in research before. In the past, we've told that person, send your patients away to be in someone else's study or come be an investigator with all the burden and overhead that brings. And what the FDA did that I think was very clever in this draft guidance was they said that healthcare providers, for instance, local community doctors, can perform procedures that are in a clinical trial if that procedure is considered routine care, that it's a procedure for which they're already trained and considered qualified. And now this creates an opportunity for more activity in a research study to happen with the doctor in your community that you know and trust. Maybe the investigator from the big academic center is going to be on the screen via video during that encounter. But it creates this new way for community providers to get involved and engaged in research. And quite honestly, they need to be fairly compensated for their time when they're doing so. But it creates this new way for patients to get connected with research and to learn about it from the people they trust most on the topic, their own local doctor. Alongside trust, you mentioned uh, transparency there. And you served as Pfizer's head of clinical innovation, right? And a story that you told on a talk on YouTube, which I'll be leaving as a link in the description, was and something that I particularly loved was that Pfizer started providing patient-friendly summaries of all their study results to the patients so that they could actually understand their study results. They were more likely to then trust the clinical research and sh be more inclined to then share their data going forwards. So tell me about the drive for implementing that during your time at Pfizer. That's a great question, Ash. And you mentioned earlier around this concept of deliverables. When industry and others, academia or others, run a research study, there is some form of set of deliverables that are being created. Deliverables in that case might be a research publication that's submitted for to a journal. Maybe it's a regulatory submission for the basis of approval for a new medicine. But historically, we didn't line up what are the deliverables that need to go back to the participants themselves in the research study. In a traditional research study, when that patient has their last visit in the trial, we as researchers are done with them and they're shown the door. And there's a country song whose name I, I would probably butcher, but it has some phrase in it of, I don't even know her last name. It's sort of like we, we let the door hit them on the way out and as if we didn't have a relationship with these people. They gave us the, they, they shared data with us. They took an investigational medicine in their body and came in for all these visits. There's an obligation we need to have back to them, the participants. And that commitment we pursued in two different ways. One was making sure that the study results were not only published in a scientific journal, but that they were also written in a patient-friendly way and provided back to them, the participants, or in some cases, their families. Now, that's become increasingly codified now so that more and more registries in Europe and in the US will now require researchers to prepare these types of patient-friendly or lay-friendly summaries of study results. We then took that to a next level, which was, and, 
individuals should have access to their own data from the study in which they participated. So if we have generated data about you, whether it's as basic as lab work and other physiologic data that we collected over time or other more sophisticated measurements, we should be providing that back to you if you wish, often at the end of the study, only embargoed to that point because of certain blinding and bias that we may need to control during the study. And what typically happens in many research studies is you may have a tube of blood that isn't sent just to your local lab and loaded into your local electronic health record. That tube of blood may go off to a research lab somewhere else. And great data and insights are generated from all those tubes, but you and your rest of your doctors don't necessarily get access to that data. It's locked away in a study database. And so we launched this program at Pfizer some time ago to be able to give people back access to their study data if they wish to have access to it. My friends at Pfizer that used to be part of my team over there just announced that they were able to fully scale that work now across the enterprise. At least in countries where it's allowed and available right now, they've really been able to ramp up that program and make sure that it's not just a novelty for some studies, but really a platform for patients across research studies at Pfizer. A lot of companies have struggled to make that type of reality happen. Even if the idea seems right to them, I think they've struggled thinking about liability concerns, what would patients even want to do with this data, but there's no better way, I think, to earn trust than through transparency. And if you really believe this is an individual's data, this is their data, then all we're really doing is giving it back to them. And talking of videos that you have on YouTube of yourself, that you also gave a fantastic TED Talk, which again, I'll be leaving as a link in the description. And you were talking about how data is a fuel for innovation. And I will challenge this and say it's not the only fuel and actually diversity is also an additional fuel when it comes to innovation. So clinical trials have often faced a lot of criticism due to their lack of diversity. I guess the stereotypical clinical trial candidate is white and male. And another reason that decentralized clinical trials are exciting because it opens up barriers to participation, right? Maybe talk a little bit about this, Craig. That TED talk I did was from a number of years ago, but it really leaned into that theme of that more and more patients around the world have access to their health data. And those who have access to their health data, that study after study has shown us that over nine out of 10 are willing to share that data to support research. Really, they just have a few asterisks, some very reasonable conditions that most people want attached to it, right? Around transparency and around visibility to where their data is going. But that future is becoming more and more reality today where more and more patients can connect and bring their personal health data into research, whether it's through patient portals, whether it's through emerging data standards like HL7 and FHIR, whether it's through different privacy-preserving tokens that can link and connect data in smart ways. Now, to your other point here around diversity in clinical research. Not a new issue. It's been identified and known of for years with lots of different initiatives that companies had run. But I think that in the last four or five years, even just prior to the pandemic, the increased spotlight on social justice certainly created um, increased uh, pressure on the uh, pharmaceutical industry to step up and address many of those data gaps that our research studies 
studies, if they primarily are studying people that look like me, a bunch of white guys, then our findings are really meant to support efficacy and safety in people that look like me, rather than the people that are actually going to be prescribed the medicine. And so how can we help to overcome or address some of those challenges? In fact, when you look at the vaccine studies that were run, say, with the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, the ultimate study data sets were highly diverse and representative. They just took a little extra effort to make that happen, right? It wasn't some sort of miraculous feat. It just required some additional planning and some additional execution and investment in terms of building trust with the right stakeholders, making sure your investigators are in the right communities or you're using those smart decentralized approaches to be able to unlock access in communities where access was otherwise limited. Now, here in the U.S., the FDA issued guidance, and that was supported by follow-on policy around requirements for diversity action plans to be created for new medicines that are entering later stages of development. And so there is a requirement now that companies are creating these diversity plans, but it is just a plan. It does not mean that there is a legislated requirement that diversity needs to be demonstrated or delivered on. My, my grandmother used to say, a young girl plans and God laughs. Like, we can make plans. It doesn't mean we're actually delivering on them. And in fact, when you look at the, the diversity plan guidance document from the FDA, if you do run a study and you fail to deliver on the diversity plan, typically the follow-on action is you'll have to do some post-marketing commitment. After the drug is approved, maybe you'll have to do some studies with real-world data or maybe a registry. And that's fine, but that's a second-class tier of data, right? Randomized controlled clinical trials are one tier of data. Relying on real-world data is a second tier. And so just saying to folks that you should have a plan and if you fail to execute on it, we'll just rely on real-world data doesn't really solve the underlying challenge. In fact, it only exacerbates the fact that there's two tiers of evidence for different populations of people. So I really think that the things like the guidance document and requiring plans is a good start, but it really needs to become more of a requirement to be acted on. And there are ways that could be baked in. If, for instance, we created through policy incentives and carrots and sticks. That's what drives change in a lot of this industry. Rare disease drug development and pediatric drug development came because we created incentives. We said to companies, you'll have longer periods of exclusivity if you develop medicines for these underserved populations. We could do the same for diversity and say that if you create regulatory submissions that truly represent the underlying population, you will have an extended period of exclusivity. And something tells me if we did that, diversity in clinical research would no longer be an issue. When talking about diversity and specifically ethnic minority communities, there's a lot of talk that these ethnic minority communities are hard to reach communities. But I would disagree. I don't think that they are necessarily hard to reach, but it's actually the fact that 
people haven't been looking in the right places. And so something else that is exciting is the ability to open up clinical research beyond just the home and the clinical setting, but actually also out into the community. So mobile pop-ups, retail clinics, places of worship. So what is the true potential of this next phase of clinical trials? I think that's a, that's a great observation. I think for years, folks have just been regurgitating facts or beliefs that I think have some truth that trust is the biggest barrier. But when you talk to different leaders within different diverse communities, they'll say how people just aren't being invited. That yes, there is a trust issue that needs to be addressed, but people just aren't being invited to participate. And so making sure that our invitation to participate is reaching into diverse communities where people are. Now, more and more people are using data when they're planning and designing their studies. They're using epidemiologic data and other types of real world data to tell them where patients are, which parts of the city, which parts of, of the town or the village have patients that are likely to have my to meet my studies eligibility criteria and bring the diversity that I want to see included in my study. In some cases, we might want to make sure there's a site there with an investigator who ideally looks like the people in their community with their staff and others, right? We don't need to bring in necessarily a mobile unit with a bunch of white people in lab coats hopping off saying we're here to help, right? In some cases, those mobile and pop-up sites can be great ways to bring access to different areas of community where there's something of a research desert. Ideally, if we're taking those strategies, I think there's a, a good, a better, and a best out there, right? Good is you get into the community and you're getting diverse patients into a study that that's fine but best is are you leaving something behind that adds value back to that community are you training people in that community to be able to serve as uh, clinical research coordinators and creating new job opportunities for people in those communities that look like those communities because that's how we we build more long-term solutions rather than just find a solution that that solves a problem for one study at a time. And we spoke about regaining trust earlier when it comes to clinical research. And something that was really intriguing for me is in, in I think it was 2018, there was the Apple Heart Study where the, the, the ECG or EKG for people in America function was being utilized um, by Apple Watch uh, wearers to detect cardiac arrhythmias. And it was the results of that study weren't so impressive, but it was the fact that they got around 400,000 patients enrolled in a matter of months. And so big tech like Apple have that brand name, that brand trust, and they have the market penetration. So how do you envision big tech playing a role in clinical trials going into the future? The Apple Heart Study certainly enrolled an extraordinary number of people, but they also made it extraordinarily easy, right? These were people that had already owned an iPhone and had purchased an Apple Watch that was of sufficient version that it worked for that particular study. And from there, it was basically dropping a notification and sending that invitation to a group of individuals. Now, let's face it, folks who have an Apple Watch and an iPhone are pretty committed Apple fans. And so... So there was definitely an enriched audience there, but there are some really interesting learnings for us from that whole experience because what Apple created in the process is an app on, on the phone called Research, right? So Apple has Apple Health, 
which consolidates and creates ways to consolidate a lot of your health data and make it actionable, which is great. And then there are things like HealthKit and ResearchKit, which were open source GitHub-based ways to be able to build and develop new types of apps there. But Apple also created an interesting app called Apple Research. And the thing that's really cool about Apple's research app is it is one application on your phone that can invite, from which you can be invited and participate in multiple research studies, right? So it's not an app for study X that now I have to choose to participate and download and go through a, an unfamiliar consenting process. Instead, Apple spun this whole thing around and said, one app for research. And it didn't matter which of the multiple studies you might be eligible for, or maybe multiple, you're consenting through them all through one app in a consistent and familiar way. You can link and connect your health data from Apple Health. You'll get reminders about different tasks for the studies all through one application. That is, I think, an important signal for us in terms of ways to make research far more accessible. Most of our research research infrastructure has all of these one-off little applications and tools for them. And where we need to shift is this mindset of giving people one interface that they can know and trust and conforming our research to fit into that environment rather than forcing people to fit into the different tools and apps we were thinking of for research. I think Apple's research app is a is really a game changer in a lot of ways and gives us a clue of what the future can look like with both an Android study app out there and an Apple study app out there where different sponsors can in, in academics can introduce different research studies, but do it through one trusted framework where people are already participating. Now, are big tech companies going to come and completely disrupt all the pharma? I, I doubt that's necessarily the case, but I do think there are disruptors out there for pharma that are on the horizon. We talked earlier about the extraordinary costs involved in research and development of a new medicine. And we're already starting to see how much of research and development can be disrupted through more democratized, open source ways of doing similar work. And what happens when we start to stack up all of that open innovation and open tools in more democratized ways. So let's take clinical trials, for instance, which can be tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to, to execute. Are there ways out there on the horizon that people can run their own research studies for a new intervention using highly democratized tools that can bring the same levels of trust and confidence in the data? Absolutely. And so when those tools become more and more democratized, is it going to be big tech that's disrupting pharma? Probably not. I would say it's actually organized groups of patients that will be the next disruptor of pharma. Interesting. Uh, just to tell a quick story, actually, it's quite an interesting story. So in the UK, we have the NHS app and the NHS app is effectively where all your patient records will be stored. You can view your data and collect your data. But only recently did the NHS app add the function of functionality to be able to view your data and i was recently at a conference in london and it was an ai and data and healthcare conference and professor joe harrison he's the national director of the nhs app he was uh, hosting a panel discussion and he posed a question to the audience about how many people actually knew that you could view your data on the nhs app 
and, and not many people put their hand up. And then he asked a further question, which was how many people have actually opened their NHS app in the last couple of months? And even fewer people raised their hands. And there, there was laughs in the audience, but I think the point was missed. And obviously, despite the improved functionalities in for patients in the UK to view their data, people aren't opening the NHS app. And that's because of the poor user interface and experience. And I see partnering with big tech organizations like Apple, who really understand consumer psychology, user experience, gamification, reward pathways, will increase the use of remote data collection services and platforms. And it is really exciting. You remind me of a, of a story when we first started doing data return uh, inside of Pfizer. We sat with a lot of patients and we collected a lot of data telling us that patients wanted access to their data from the studies in which they participated. And so we went through this effort to make these tools and processes in place so that people could access their data. And then we started returning data through an interface but found very few patients ever clicked the button to access their data. And so the question came back, is this exercise of failure? We thought people said they wanted their data. They, we made it available, but they're not clicking the button. And it turned out how many people click the button isn't actually the KPI, the, the key performance indicator, the measure that actually should matter to a company like Pfizer. What matters is what we've been talking about for so much of this conversation trust. Do people have a greater sense of trust knowing that the button is there, knowing that the company, the research sponsor, and other stakeholders are making the data available and that it's always available with a click of a button? Does that mean I need to click the button? Probably not. Does that mean I have greater trust because I know the button is there and that people aren't hiding it, but it's accessible to me? That's the measure that matters, I think, for pharma. And so it's it's interesting. Could we make interfaces much better? Should people be clicking the data? I believe that we should be making that data so rich and interoperable that people aren't clicking to view it and download it. They're clicking to connect it and to power other apps and tools that can make their lives better and healthier. But when it comes to pharma, what really should matter is, do people have a greater sense of trust knowing that the data was being made available in the first place? Now, either way, awareness is going to be a key part of that story, just like you pointed out. But it's not just then making the data available in a button. What is that UX wrapped around it? And if is it really now becoming interoperable so that it can actually power something else that improves people's lives? And you mentioned earlier the two rules of clinical trials and you said one was obviously no compromise of patient safety and the second one was demonstrating the evidence of the integrity of data that you're collecting right and so that last part there of demonstrating the evidence of the integrity of data is exciting in the context of ai because we're seeing there are sensors there's wearables coming out but ai coupled with those sensors and wearables allowed us allows us to create more robust and integral data points. So where do you see this going further? And what other exciting applications do you see in terms of AI with clinical research? It's such an exciting question right now. And certainly first, do no harm, right? So we have to make sure that if we're using AI, we're doing it in ways that are safe and that are inclusive, that we're not relying on 
data that are training AI tools that inherently have bias itself in terms of which patients may be in a data set from which an AI-based tool is being trained. But as we pointed out earlier, in this day and age of highly connected devices where safety and data integrity are our guardrails, how does AI actually help here? So here's a quick example. If I'm running a research study and let's say I have this wonderful, smarter way to collect streaming sensor-derived data from patients, all from a watch on their wrist or some other data source, how do we make sure we have an understanding of the safety of the individual? It's one thing to say a patient comes in once every six months and I check their blood pressure. And then I have one data point uh, every six months from which to monitor safety. That's pretty easy to control with a, a physician as an investigator. What happens when that data is being streamed at a, an extraordinary sampling rate on a continuous basis? How do we expect investigators and other clinical staff to to be able to have proper oversight of that data to make sure that there's proper safety and protections in place. And so we're going to have to rely on different types of algorithms and artificial intelligence to help us to monitor and make sense of that data to make sure that there are our partners, that there are companions for the investigator to support them in doing their job because that's where the buck stops when it comes to patient safety is with that, that physician, that investigator in the study. And so the, I think there are exciting AI-driven uh, tools here that will create new types of measurements for us. But likewise, there will be important ways that AI is going to help us to manage this incredible volume of data that we're witnessing today and help give us confidence that we can properly monitor patients for safety and other concerns that may emerge. I think there are a lot of other places right now where we're already seeing AI come in that can help to automate discrete processes and help to step in, whether it's generative AI around patient narratives and protocols and regulatory submissions. But the last use case I'll say that I think is particularly exciting right now is this opportunity to use uh, AI and machine learning to create digital twins in our research studies. Picture a world where if I'm being asked to participate in a research study and typically I'm then being randomized to see if I'm either going to get the new medicine or the control arm in the study, what if there was a world where at the time that I'm consenting to participate in that study, I gave you permission to look at all of my historical medical record data, and then you were able to take a, a machine that was trained based on lots of different patients like me over time to be able to create a digital twin of myself that could actually almost serve as control for me, right? What would my outcomes and my data look like if I did not at this date, switch and take this new investigational medicine? And can we start to reimagine what research studies will look like where we have actual patients and their digital twins enrolled in studies together? Now, I think that can create some really exciting ways for us to reduce the number of patients in control arms, which no patients are that excited to, to get signed into. That can reduce a lot of the burden and bureaucracy and overhead in clinical research. These digital twins can help to drive increased numbers and powers in our study. But I think there are some interesting risks there as well. I wrote a 
blog piece two years ago about what happens if my digital twin starts to get enrolled in studies without my consent or permission. How promiscuous and accessible is my data that people can create digital twins of me and put them into research studies that maybe I didn't support or didn't want my self, my digital self to be enrolled in. And so I think there are some really exciting futures here in all of these use cases for AI, but many of them that we still need to make sure have important controls around them, that people's data are being used in ways consistent with their wishes, and that the data on which these machines are being trained are themselves fair and representative. And Craig, this has been a really exciting, interesting conversation. I've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. And just to end, I wanted to close with a question around the future of clinical trials and the next generation of clinical trials and what it looks like. I think there there are some very exciting futures out there. I think we see a lot of the pieces of what that looks like today. We see digital measurements and other digital tools that are automating a lot of this process. We're seeing how decentralized approaches can make research far more accessible and more widely distributed. When we build a clinical trial protocol and a database and a network of research sites and a recruitment strategy. It's like we're lifting off this massive airplane, but only have one passenger on board for all of that burden and overhead. And then when that last patient is enrolled and uh, finishes in the trial, we shut it all down and take down all that infrastructure and phone wires as if we're never going to try and lift off another study again. And so there's some great pioneers out there, including over at Oxford, like Martin Landry and others that have really been driving this future today of how we can run these collaborative studies that you reuse infrastructure to be able to evaluate multiple investigational medicines over time. Now, these take a great deal of convening power. And so in many cases, we've seen advocacy groups or like Friends of Cancer Research and others that have brought the community together to work in a more collaborative way. But during the pandemic, it was really those master protocols, those collaborative studies that answered the important questions in the world about which treatments were working and which ones were not. So I think when we look at that and think about that conversation we had about Apple's research app and like having a single application or like your example with the NHR. So I think we see a lot of these breadcrumbs about ways that these pieces will get put together very differently, where I as an individual can have one app through which I am choosing to participate in research, where that research is running on a platform evaluating multiple interventions over time. It's highly powered by digital and it's leveraging these decentralized approaches to let me participate from almost anywhere. And I think the last element I'll throw in there is this highly democratized nature that all of that infrastructure we just described is not just for the privileged, very well-funded pharmaceutical manufacturer, but made far more accessible, whether for advocacy groups or others to be able to drive. Craig, it's been my pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. 